It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. There's an iconic illustration that's come to be indelibly linked with the concept of human evolution. I'm absolutely sure you've seen it before. On the extreme left-hand side crouches an ape-like figure. On the extreme right, a modern human stands tall. And in between those two creatures is a sequence of other ape-like figures, each one more human than the last. Now, this image was originally called the Road to Homo Sapiens. It was created in the latter half of the 20th century as a way of representing millions of years of human evolution. It paints a very clear picture that evolution from our primitive ancestors to modern Homo sapiens was progressive and linear. Over the past decade, though, the scientific consensus on that story has been shifting. Human evolution, it turns out, was far more complex than previously realised. And new technologies revealing just how complicated the origins of our species really were. Hello and welcome to Babbage from The Economist, our weekly podcast on science and technology. I'm Alok Jha, The Economist science correspondent. Around 100,000 years ago, there were many different human-like species on Earth. Today, there's only one, us, Homo sapiens. In this episode, we'll be exploring humans. Where did they first emerge? How did they spread? And how did Homo sapiens come to dominate? We'll trace the story of our evolution and explain how interbreeding with other species gave us many of the traits we have today. Our knowledge of this history is getting better and deeper. Scientists are nowadays not only hunting for clues in the bones of our ancestors, but also within the genomes of people living today. Critical pieces of the story of humans, including possible evidence for ancient but as yet undiscovered species of humans, are hidden within our DNA. And scientists are only just getting started with trying to decipher that. Watch your step as you go here. I don't ever want to walk down there. I'll keep the light on for you. Thank you. I spent a few months in South Africa earlier this year, and one of the things I got to do was visit this sort of vast underground cavern called Gladysvale Cave, a little bit outside of Johannesburg, in a part of South Africa called the Cradle of Humankind. How deep does this go? Um, we have been down to 85 meters. Okay. The economist Dylan Barry recently went to South Africa to investigate humanity's earliest origins. 
This part of South Africa is famous for a range of these kinds of systems of limestone caves that have basically been accumulating fossils for millions and millions of years. For example, some of the oldest fossils of human-like species, hominins as they're known, come from this part of the world. South Africa is interesting because uh, the majority of evidence of early human evolution we have mostly comes from Eastern Africa and Southern Africa. But what's special about these particular sites in South Africa is that they've produced remarkably complete skeletons. I was basically here because I wanted to really dive deep and try to understand human evolution, not just at one point in time, but right the way from the point where our line splits from that of chimpanzees up to the present day. Okay, well, the the story of human evolution has obviously been something of great fascination to scientists for decades, and there has always been a quite linear story of it. So just take us back to the first step. What's the traditional view of human evolution? Basically, the story starts about seven million years ago. The line of ancestry that would eventually become us, you and me, Alok, and every other human on Earth, split off from that of chimpanzees and their close cousins, the bonobos. These very, very, very early ancestors of ours, they were tree dwellers. They would have lived much like chimpanzees do today. But as evolution went on, they kind of came down from the trees, they started walking upright. They became bipedal, walking on two legs. They were still very primitive, still very ape-like. And there was a span of several million years where this is basically what our ancestors looked like. And um, these ancestors of ours, we refer to them as the Australopithecines. And I was very lucky. I got the chance to visit six of the ten most complete early hominin skeletons ever found, all in South Africa, most of which were examples of Australopithecines. Okay, so Australopithecus is a word that uh, people interested in this topic will know. This means southern ape, and these are the hominids that preceded our own species, or at least the ancestors to our species, humans. Tell me a bit more about the Australopithecus hominids. So basically, the Australopithecines were this very early chapter of human evolution. And um, they're the first chapter where we start to see these key differences between us and the great apes. So they look very ape-like, except suddenly we start to see these features associated with bipedal walking and standing upright and up straight. We believe associated with that as well was this kind of change in, in intelligence. We have very strong evidence that the Australopithecines started using stone tools. And uh, we also believe that they started kind of relying on a more meat-based diet. So some of the earliest evidence of tools actually come from scratch marks on bones that suggest that not only were they using stone tools, they were using them to cut and process meat. And Dylan, you went to see some of the oldest Australopithecine skeletons, right? Tell me about those. I did. So uh, I'm sitting here with uh, Bernard Zipfel at the University of the Witwatersrand. I had the chance to visit the University of the Witwatersrand in Johannesburg, which has a vault where they keep a large number of these really famous hominin skeletons. And I was lucky enough to have a chat with a paleoanthropologist named Bernard Zipfel, who helped explain a little bit about the context of these findings and this collection. So we are in this spectacular room, which I believe is called the vault. Some people call it the vault. More accurately, it's the fossil hominin laboratory. But it has a very big steel door. So it is a big room. There are a range of really interesting fossils in this collection. One of them, and and maybe the most important of them, is a fossil called Littlefoot. It's an example of an Australopithecus. And it was discovered in 1994 by a really well-known paleoanthropologist named Ron Clark. And uh, Bernard kindly told me about its significance. And there was a remarkable number of um, interesting foot bones there that would be, at the time, one of the very, very few 
uh, so-called complete hominin footbones. They're extremely rare. And uh, then years later, uh, Professor Clark uh, got casts of this little foot and handed them to his assistants to go into the cave where they were seeing some bones sticking out of the side uh, of, of a cave wall. And they managed to match it up to some of these bones. And that's how he found the rest of the skeleton, quite remarkably. And it, it took a number of years to to uh, prepare out of the rock. It's only recently that the skeleton um, has come into this vault and was announced in 2017. And um, it is remarkably complete and remains the world's most complete ostracus. The other interesting thing is that it is dated at around um, uh, 3.6 million years, which is somewhat older than most of our um, ostracus here and has been assigned to the uh, taxon Australopithecus prometheus. What's so notable about Littlefoot is the fact that it is basically a complete skeleton, and it's essentially the only one of its kind. Usually you're finding a little bit here or there, you're finding scraps. It is incredibly unusual to find a basically complete skeleton, and we've only ever found one, and this is it. That's amazing. So how, how does Littlefoot and the other Australopithecus skeletons in the collection, how do they fit into our picture of human evolution? Do they change it? Well, yes. And to understand this a little bit better, I went to the Ditsong Museum in Pretoria, which is just north of Johannesburg, to talk to Dr. Miriam Tawane, who's the curator of the paleoanthropology collection there. Morning, morning. How are you? <laughs> What you are seeing in front of you is two specimens that belong to the, the species, the Australopithecines. So Miriam kindly pointed out what the distinguishing features of different Australopithecines are. I mean, even look at their tooth, they have extremely thick enamel, and then their cheekbones, they, they are very, very flat and thick. And based on our current evidence and current understanding, as, as far as we can tell, the Australopithecines were the immediate forebears, the immediate ancestors of the genus Homo, to which you and I, Alok, and, and every other human on the planet belongs. From the Australopithecines, uh, there was an emergence of the Homo lineage, uh, which examples will be your Homo habilis, your Homo erectus, and recently the new edition of one of the specimens that was discovered in South Africa was Homona lady. We might have evidence of some more than the other because Homona lady is well represented in South Africa compared to Homo erectus and Homo, Homo habilis, but that's where the evolution took us. Those are the specimens that came after the Australopithecines. So Dylan, this is where we get to our species, or at least the ancestors of our species, Homo. As part of your reporting in South Africa, you've been speaking to a lot of the world's experts on what's called this middle part of human evolution to figure out why getting from the first Homo species all the way to us, uh, Homo sapiens, well, it isn't quite as simple as people once thought, right? That's exactly right. So when I was in the Cradle of Humankind in South Africa, I had the chance to speak to Professor Lee Berger, who's probably one of the world's most famous paleoanthropologists. He's the scientist who sent loads of volunteers into caves, right? That's exactly right. 
Professor Lee Berger is the person who discovered both Australopithecus sediba and Homanaledi, which have been two of the really most important fossil discoveries of the last 15 years. And the Homanaledi discovery happened in this sort of really complicated cave system called Rising Star. And basically to access the fossils, they had to enter this sort of deep hidden cavern deep within the cave system that was only accessible through the shaft with a very, very narrow point that could only be traversed by sort of really small individuals. <laughs> so Professor Berger put out a call around the world for sort of small women paleoanthropologists who felt like going on an adventure. He called them the underground astronauts. This is a great story, and I'll let Lee Berger start. You visited some of those sites today, some of the newer ones, um, the Rising Star site where Homo Naledi came from. You went to Gladys Vale where uh, I started my uh, career finding my first couple of hominid teeth and now we're trying to look in that time period of the Middle Pleistocene. Uh, so the Middle Pleistocene is the technical term for the period between roughly 750,000 years ago and about 125,000 years ago. We go back 20 years though. When we taught human evolution, we taught it like a ladder. You would have heard that the earliest hominid that we've discovered would date back sort of five to five and a half million years in the form of Ardipithecus ramidus, which is hardly a hominid. But it would sit as the pinnacle of the earliest origins of the hominid lineage. After that, things would get really easy. We'd see the rise of the Australopithecines, and the earliest would go by things like Australopithecus anamensis, which would give rise to Australopithecus afarensis, with famous fossils like Lucy you would have heard of. And now we've moved down in time, four million, three million years. And then we would have reached this giant gap, this huge gap in the fossil record between three and two million years, where we think something's happening because we know what's coming out the other end, but there's almost no evidence for it. This is where we think the genus Homo is arising. There were a few fossils, 2.6 and 2.8 million years, largely from East Africa, that were hinting that maybe they were the earliest Homo. But they're very enigmatic, and they're surface finds, and they kind of sit in that, that strange area. We think that that's where the complexity of tools is arising. So back in the day, the thinking was that the, the first member of the genus Homo, to which we belong, um, was a species called Homo habilis. And the thought was that it pretty neatly evolved into Homo erectus and other species, which evolved into Homo heidelbergensis and other species, which evolved into the Neanderthals, which eventually evolved into us. The idea was basically that at any given moment in time in our evolutionary history, there was one kind of dominant human species around. And uh, that was a really lovely picture for a bunch of reasons. Basically, you could put all of your fossils in a line, and the more primitive fossil anatomies, you could assume they were older. The more advanced fossil anatomies, the ones that are closer to modern humans, you could assume they were younger. And in particular, whatever archaeological evidence you had, for example, different kinds of stone tool technology, you know, you could just say, okay, what was going on at the time, what was the species around at the time, and probably that species was doing those things. But there's a problem. Over the last decade or so, both paleoanthropologists and archaeologists have discovered that this picture is woefully incomplete. Somebody who knows a lot about this is Professor John Hawkes, who is a paleoanthropologist at the University of Wisconsin. We spent 150 years debating about whether our evolution was a straight line <laughs> or a tree with a few branches. <laughs> And the last 20 years have shown us that there were many branches, 
and they were intertwined. You know, we've faced an increasingly tough problem in the past, associating evidence of behavior like tool use or the animals that were killed by ancient you know, species or, or evidence of climate, for instance, to fossil populations, right? Which hominids made which stuff? This has been a big problem in the earlier Pleistocene for a long time, because we know that Paranthropus and early Homo coexisted. They lived in the same places. And there's this question, who made the stone tools, right? So stone tools have been a part of hominid existence for more than two and a half, three million years. That, you know, that's something that we expect that most hominids could have made. And we're reliant on technology. So we think it's really important to us. So basically, we had bits and pieces from, from different points in that kind of evolutionary trajectory living at the same time. So what we thought were ancestors of Homo were suddenly living alongside Homo. And it was even more complicated than that because you had kind of different stages in, in the evolution of the genus Homo living at the same time as well. Here is a, a giant talus cone that is formed here. Um, when I was at the Cradle of Humankind, Lee Berger showed me some of the sites where a lot of these really important hominin fossil discoveries were made. Those being full of lime-bearing rocks up to the top, out into a running cocoa pan, over to that site where people chipping it and throwing it in. So a great example of one of these discoveries, which was made in 2013, was a species of hominin called Hominaledi. Hominaledi is really interesting because we've already talked about how this picture was messy. Homo naledi makes it a whole lot messier. So basically, Homo naledi is, is this sort of hominin species that looks really primitive in a whole bunch of ways. You know, it had a relatively small brain. Many of the kind of proportions of its upper body are similar to kind of the Australopithecines. But in addition to that, it has some kind of surprisingly modern-looking features. You know, its hands and wrists and feet um, were quite similar to those of sort of modern humans and, and other relatively recent hominins like the Neanderthals. But looking at this mix of features, you, you might assume that they're quite an old species, but we've actually found the opposite. Homo naledi was living alongside other sort of much more advanced, modern-looking species of Homo. John Hawke explained why the situation is so puzzling for researchers at the moment. With Homo naledi, we have a group that was small in brain size that looks like it was super sophisticated in its, you know, its hands and its teeth that gives us reason to think that they were technological and we know where they lived. We do not know whether they lived in an overlapping region, whether with, with modern humans or Homo sapiens, whether there was contact between them, right? We have to expect that there was. When we look at other closely related species of antelopes, right, or of carnivores or any kind of species on the landscape, they're inhabiting similar landscapes. So why would we not think that of, of humans and human relatives? They must have been inhabiting similar landscapes. They probably were familiar with each other. That raises the question, right? When we see evidence of archaeology, evidence of behavior, how do we tie it to a population? It is a big problem for us. My presumption is that they were sharing information they could learn from each other, and they were not pretending like they were in a vacuum. Professor Lee Berger, he and, and his colleagues call this period in human evolutionary history the muddle in the middle. It's this glorious mess where we know more about human evolution and most of that evidence coming in the last 12 years than we have in all of history at the same moment that we know we know less. And that's the most exciting thing about right now.
Right now we know that that middle is a muddle. It is a disaster. And molecular biology is showing that all kinds of messy things are going on. Every time we find new archaeological sites or new fossils in that period, it's messy. It's not clean. And that muddle in the middle is one of the most exciting places to be right now. So, of course, the evidence we have for this period of time, up to around about 100,000 years ago, it remains quite sparse. But the evidence that we do have all points towards a much more complicated picture, where instead of having this neat straight line from our common ancestors with chimpanzees through the Australopithecines, through the genus Homo, and eventually to us Homo sapiens, the emerging picture is, is a much more complicated one. So instead of this nice neat line, we've got this kind of branching bush of multiple species at almost every moment of human evolution living alongside each other. Dylan, that was an interesting story. Thank you for that. I think the message I'm getting from the reporting you've been doing is that this middle part of human evolution really is a muddle, as, as you say. So what are researchers looking for now to try and understand that period of time better, to sort of tease out what was going on? So basically, what everybody would love to have is fossil sites where we can directly link the species that were around at the time with the tools being used and the behaviors being done as well. We want to find fossil bones alongside tools in one place so that it is very, very obvious what's going on. That'll help us clear up the muddle a little bit. Okay, that's absolutely fascinating. Coming up shortly, we're going to explore the very latest techniques to try and understand our most immediate ancestors and also try and explain why humans today are the way that they are. But first, you can read plenty more on paleontology and evolution in The Economist. Last week, for example, we had an article about how the dinosaurs survived a mass extinction by the simple fact of being able to withstand the cold. They were just more insulated. It's amazing, isn't it? And do check out as well our recent coverage of the new photographs that have just come out of the James Webb Space Telescope, which are amazing. Yeah, like any nerd, we've been looking forward to those for months. And you can also, if you want all the history of the James Webb Space Telescope, listen to the Babbage podcast from December last year, which takes you through all of the various instruments, all of the complications, all the delays. Um, it's an incredible feat of engineering. So I highly recommend all of that. As always, you can get your best introductory deal for full access to all of our journalism at economist.com slash podcast offer. The link is in the show notes. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. Today, we've been exploring the evolution of humans. I'm joined once again by the economist Dylan Barry. Dylan, the picture you've been painting about human evolution in the period of time between a few million years ago and 100,000 or so years ago is quite complicated. 
how is modern scientific technology changing our understanding of the more recent part of that human evolution story? So the most recent period of human evolution has been equally complex. But because it's been more recent, we know a lot more about it. And the real game changer is being able to look at DNA evidence. DNA evidence can help us to establish exactly how more recent hominin species and more recent species in the genus Homo connect to each other. And uh, along with some really sophisticated computational techniques, we're beginning to develop a much clearer picture and a very interesting picture of this recent chapter. Okay, well, this is exciting. This brings us right bang up to date with modern technology and science. But there's a question here. How do you sequence DNA from ancient bones? I mean, DNA doesn't survive for a very long time um, in the environment. So if it's something that's hundreds of thousands of years old, how are we sequencing DNA from them? So to get DNA out of these really ancient bones, basically what happens is, a, is sort of scientists very carefully scrape a little bit of the bone off and pop it in a test tube and they put it in a special solution. And then you basically sequence it like you would modern DNA. Now, the trouble is that the DNA tends to be very fragmentary, right? So it's, it's been sitting around for a long time. It falls apart over time. So you're trying to piece together lots of small broken apart snippets of ancient DNA and, and trying to make sense of it. Now, one thing you can do is called uh, polymerase chain reaction, which is PCR. So it's the same thing you're doing when you are uh, doing a COVID test. It's basically the strategy for amplifying the amount of copies of the DNA you've got in a sample. And then there are all kinds of clever techniques for piecing together all of these small parts into a kind of coherent genome. But it's really sophisticated stuff, and it takes really skilled scientists, and these are techniques that we're improving all the time. And, and that's allowing us to learn more and more from the genetic data that we, that we have available to us. So tell me what scientists have found by sequencing all these old bones. Definitely the most striking thing that has come out of this kind of new field of research looking at ancient DNA is strong evidence that there was interbreeding between our species and some of the other sort of closely related hominin species around at the time. How do you work that out from the DNA that you've got? How do you work out that there was this interbreeding? So basically, the big breakthrough was in 2010, which was the year that we managed to piece together for the first time a complete Neanderthal genome. And that was really useful because for the first time we could put a Neanderthal genome alongside a human genome and look at the bits that were similar and the bits that were different. And what we discovered is that in some human populations, a whole bunch of snippets were identical. And that immediately told us something very important, which is that at some point in our relatively recent evolutionary history, Neanderthals and us interbred, and we carry the signs of that interbreeding in our genetics today. Now, of course, it wouldn't just have happened once. There would have been more than one human and one Neanderthal involved. It would have been a, a kind of period of human evolutionary history where this interbreeding was going on. But we think that it happened probably sometime between 50,000 and 70,000 years ago. And all kinds of lines of evidence suggest that this probably happened in the Middle East not long after the first humans began to leave Africa. That's the one story. In the same year, in 2010, a handful of bones were discovered in a cave in Siberia called Denisova Cave. And, you know, we'd, we'd already known that Neanderthals had historically inhabited this cave. And the, the thinking was these were probably just going to be some more Neanderthal bones. But when the DNA in them was sequenced, what we discovered is that they were a completely different species, as distantly related to us as Neanderthals are, but something different. Scientists have since called the species the Denisovans, and they were more closely related to the Neanderthals than they were to us. 
We think that historically the kind of ancestors of Neanderthals left Africa and basically split into two groups. One would go on to become the Neanderthals, one would go on to become the Denisovans. But there's something different. We have a handful of bones from sort of different bits of their body that we know are them because we've got the DNA and we can test the DNA. But we know basically nothing else about them, um, which is remarkable. So Homo sapiens interbred with Neanderthals and Denisovans. What does that tell us then about how our species evolved? So comparing Neanderthal and Denisovan DNA to our own can help us explain a little bit about our own evolution, as I discovered when I spoke to evolutionary biologist Karina Schlebusch at the University of Uppsala in Sweden. All non-Africans migrated out of Africa around 60,000 years ago. We now know that they mixed a little bit with archaic species such as Neanderthal and Denisova. There's around 1-2% to Neanderthal admixture in all non-Africans. And then there's around 4-5% to Denisovan admixture in, in Southeast Asian and also people from Australia and, and the Americas. So people, when they migrated out of Africa, they met these archaic humans. And it looks like when there was the opportunity of them mixing, they did mix. But these then archaic humans stopped to exist. Uh, some people believe that they were not completely replaced by humans, but rather absorbed by the human populations migrating through their territories because they already had very small effective population sizes. Their genetic diversities were quite low and they had high mutational loads because they were such small communities and didn't have opportunities to exchange genes with each other. There's a lot of deleterious mutations that circulated so they were already declining in genetic diversity when they met human populations. And it might actually be that they were just absorbed in the human populations. Uh, and the same also with the Denisova. So Dylan, what was the impact of those different species of humans on the genetics of today, people today, are you and me? So what we've discovered is that there are signs that natural selection has acted on some of these genes. And natural selection can work in one of two ways. It can whittle away genes that are doing damage, and it can help boost genes that are doing good things. And uh, we see all kinds of interesting evidence of, of places where genes from Neanderthals and Denisovans have not only been conserved, but have made their way and spread through human populations because of the positive effect they have. So some of the clearest examples of this happen with uh, Neanderthal genes in European populations. So for example, we see uh, a lot of the genes to do with freckling uh, and skin pigmentation in European populations come from Neanderthals. And in both Neanderthals and Denisovans, we often see that genes to do with immune responses have been boosted. There are some particularly interesting examples on the Denisovan side of the equation. And I was lucky enough to chat with uh, population geneticist Fernando Villanay at the University of Colorado, Boulder. The best known example is the gene EPAS1, which is found in about 80% of people in Tibet. The people in Tibet, they live at extremely high altitudes. I mean, extremely, extremely high. I mean, they are experiencing something like 60% of the amount of oxygen you get at sea level. It's an extreme environment. And so the gene EPAS1 actually really helps coping with that. The human body is able to survive at these low oxygen environments, but it really puts a strain on the heart. In particular, childbirth is very difficult. So the gene EPS1 really helps your heart actually be able to maintain pressure while it's really struggling in these environments. So that, that is a, the needs of a variant of EPS1 is what we see in a lot of these people. So it's probably the best known example where we have also really good validation. We know what it does and we see its effects in people today. Okay, so we know what happened to the hominins that left 
the continent of Africa. But what about the ones that didn't? Well, of course, some of those hominins turned into us. You know, you had at least one population around in Africa at the time that would go on to become modern humans. But, you know, wherever else in the world we look, we see sort of uh, slightly different, closely related species. In Europe and Western Eurasia, we see the Neanderthals. In Asia and Eastern Eurasia, we see the Denisovans. And it would be a little bit odd if similar things weren't happening in Africa. But we've got no evidence of either Neanderthals or Denisovans in Africa. But what we do have is some really, really subtle clues in the genomes of, of modern Africans, suggesting that much like all of the human lineages that left Africa sort of interbred with either Neanderthals or Denisovans or both. We have these strong hints that there were also interbreeding events with what are called ghost species in Africa. What, what's a ghost species? These aren't real ghosts, obviously. No. So these are species that would have played a role very similar to the Denisovans and Neanderthals in Eurasia, in that we would have migrated into different bits of Africa, met them and interbred with them, but on the African continent. The difference, however, is that where we have some very limited fossil evidence for Neanderthals and Denisovans that we've been able to get genomes from, we have neither for these kind of putative species on the African continent. I recently had the chance to speak about this with Shuram Sankarara, who's a computational biologist at UCLA. So he's working on understanding human evolution using both genetic data and really complicated statistical models to try and untangle these subtle signals in the human genome. There's been a progress in terms of looking at African populations where we don't have as much of ancient DNA uh, going back into the distant past for lots of technical reasons. And because of the amount of data that's been accumulated in present-day humans and using different kinds of statistical techniques, we are able to now see that there is introgression into these African populations. Introgression is a technical term for interbreeding. It basically means that you've had a kind of transfer of genetic material from one species to another. And we don't know the source of uh, this introgression, which is kind of the challenge of not having ancient genomes to work with. But again, this all kind of uh, ties into this bigger picture that introgression is commonplace, it's uh, pervasive, uh, no matter what timescales in human history we are looking at. So this is really interesting, where you've not got fossils, there might be evidence hidden within people's DNA now of these species that we haven't necessarily found yet. But apart from these genetic hints, though, is there any solid evidence for these so-called ghost species? So no, and that's exactly what makes them a ghost. The problem is twofold. So it is incredibly difficult to get genetic evidence out of bones in Africa. And this has to do with climate. So Africa in general is too hot to preserve DNA. Whereas, you know, if you're lucky enough, you can get some bones in a Siberian cave. And other than that, we haven't found any kind of smoking gun fossil evidence just in terms of bones of another one of these species. But we have some hints that there are some kind of curious fossil skeletons and skulls from various bits in Africa that, that might be examples of these species. But without the genetic evidence, it's a little bit tricky to say for certain. So if there are no bones and there are no fossils, how do you go about actually finding out and hunting these ghost species then? When you're dealing with Neanderthal genomes or Denisovan genomes, it's relatively easy. You put a bunch of modern human genomes up against the Neanderthal genomes and Denisovan genomes, and you can see very obviously where they share genetic snippets, right? And you can piece together a story from that. In the case of ghost species, you can't do that because you don't have that reference genome. But there are other ways of inferring information from human genomes about introgression. And uh, this is the kind of thing that people like Shiram have been working on over the last decade. The basic idea behind all of these studies is we don't have 
access to archaic genomes, but we have access to large numbers of present-day genomes. And by looking at patterns of genetic variation within present-day genomes, we can figure out what is the signal that an archaic interaction event would leave on present-day genomes. So another way of saying this is uh, essentially your kind of bootstrapping of present-day genomes to try to reconstruct the signal of archaic interaction. And basically what you can do is you can take a whole bunch of modern human genomes, you can look at all of the genes, and you can look at the distribution of mutations on those genes. And some kinds of distributions suggest that interaggression happened, right? So if you, if you plot the distribution of mutations as a graph, you can kind of tell the difference between genes that have been interaggressed and genes that haven't. We're still in the early days of developing this kind of technology. The signs we're working with are very subtle. But as the tools get more and more sophisticated, we're going to be able to unpack this more and more. So this is a good example of why big projects like the 3 Million African Genomes Project are so important. So the 3 Million African Genomes Project is an attempt to dramatically increase the amount of genetic data that we have from the continent of Africa. Now, there are all kinds of important reasons to do this, but these also have the benefit of giving us much more data to work on from a sort of paleogenetics standpoint, from which we're able to try and tease out with much more certainty all of these kind of complicated relationships and complicated events in the deep human evolutionary past. Do you think that there could be lots of still undiscovered ghost species out there lurking in our DNA? Hopefully, yes. The answer is almost certainly yes. Now, Dylan, we've whizzed through millions of years of very complex human evolution in a very short amount of time, only to find that we're finding out a lot more about our recent ancestors and that there are huge holes still in our knowledge, um, which is always the way with science, right? Um, now, to conclude, why do you find it interesting and important to understand the sort of path of human evolution so much more clearly? So I find this stuff fascinating. And I think a lot of these ideas are really profound ones. And actually, in, in my conversations with Professor Lee Berger, he had a really good answer to that question. If you picture in your mind a glacial lake, that beautiful still body of water at the bottom of a lovely mountain and up on the side is this glacier and, and down running from that are rivulets and streams running across gravels and moraines that have been created by that glacier as it moved and those rivulets and streams are are adding to this lake we know that now imagine that lake is all living modern humans and i point to you and i say which part of that water is most important for giving rise to this lake? And you would probably maybe look to the largest stream. But maybe you might be horrified if I point out, but that one goes down into the gravel and disappears. Do we even know if it goes into that lake? Or does it bypass and go subsurface? Oh, but look at this rivulet that goes away to the side, hits the rock walls, and comes swinging back and joins that mainstream that you think is the central... Uh, lineage of that lake of us. That, I think, is beginning to be a better model for how we're looking. It reflects more of the reality of this diversity in the past. Yes, some of these things that we're finding, these remarkable creatures, are going to go off to the side and disappear. But maybe lots of the things we have found that we thought we were just putting into that simplistic narrative also do that. But maybe, also more interestingly, not. What I find 
the most profound about all of this is the idea that we are homo sapiens. We're one species. But I think the wrong way to think about the story is as we are humans with a little bit of other things added in. Um, I think the right way to understand this is that we are human because we have little bits of other things added in. It may be a Neanderthal, it may be a Denisovan, it may be one of these ghost species in Africa. But we are all this kind of hybrid mixture of a bunch of different things. These are species that are now extinct. But they were pretty close relatives, you know. They would have almost certainly have had languages and cultures and stories and histories. These are candles that have been blown out, but they live on. They live on in you, you Alok and me <laughs> and everybody else on the planet. And they live on in our genes. And I think that's a, a really beautiful idea. And I really look forward to seeing what more we're going to learn in the years to come. That is a very profound idea and a great place to end. Dylan, thank you so much for taking me through that fascinating history. Always a pleasure. And thank you for listening to Babbage. You can read more about how interbreeding has upturned evolutionary theory on our website. In the show notes, you'll find Dylan's essay on the scientific mechanisms behind the hybridization of the species. For more of our science and tech coverage, make sure you sign up to Simply Science. That's the weekly science newsletter featuring whatever everyone in our science, tech and healthcare teams are thinking about every week. The link to subscribe to that is economist.com slash newsletters. Babbage is produced by Jason Hoskin with mixing and sound design by Nico Rofast. The executive producer is Hannah Mourinho. I'm Alok Jha and in London, this is The Economist. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.